Genesis 43 through 45, Genesis 43 through 45, and the title this morning is Reconciliation and Repentance. So hopefully you've found your place in Acts chapter 7, in a minute we'll look at verse 9, Acts 7, 9, Reconciliation and Repentance. Genesis 43 through 45. Let's pray. Would you join me in prayer, please? Let's bow our heads together. Father, it's good to see some brothers and sisters who maybe have been away traveling, maybe who have been prevented from coming because of sickness. Lord, this seems to be a season where there is a bit of sickness going around. We pray for your help. We uh, just interacting with our or talking to Bob Owens and knowing that they hopefully are on the tail end of sickness. We pray for them. We pray for our sister in Christ, Claire Foster. Lord, we pray that you would help her with a speedy recovery as she has uh, been up at Wayne Memorial. Lord, we want to worship you this morning. Help us, as Wilson already prayed, help us that we would not have any Uh, worship of false gods, but we would worship you, the one true God, through Jesus Christ. Help us through the Holy Spirit. Open your word to us. Help us with all of your energy, with all of your power. Lord, give us clarity this morning. Again, unfold your word to us, because in the unfolding of your word, there is light, and there is life. Thank you for that. Thank you that in the unfolding of your word, there is light and life through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the question is, uh, can, you, can you help me? Can you reorient me to this uh, study, this sermon series that we're doing, which, by the way, of course, is Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. Can you, can you bring me up to speed and just quickly give me a summary? And yes, I can. Uh, thanks to Stephen, thanks to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. This is just so great. I want you to see this. Can you just bring me up to speed and give me a summary? Thank you, Stephen. Thank you to the one who is the, uh, the, the greatest author of the New Testament in terms of quantity and length. That's Luke, who wrote most of the New Testament. Not Paul, Luke, because he wrote... Luke and Acts. And when you put those together, that's the biggest bulk of material in the New Testament. So this is Luke's book, the book of Acts, and this is Stephen speaking, verse 9. Here it is. Get this. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. You get it so far? What a great simple summary. Verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Who's the fathers? So that's Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers. 
But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, that's what we're going to be seeing today, the second visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. So we're not going to get there today, but I'm still going to read this. And he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Stay there for just a moment there in Acts chapter 7. Now there was a man many years ago, there was a man who cared only about himself. Later, later he was changed. The only way that anyone can ever be truly changed, and that's by the grace of God, but that's for later, as I say. This man was focused on self. Uh, he was out for number one. He hired a prostitute. He did not care what it cost him. It's kind of like the classic story that you know, perhaps, of Jacob and Esau. Do you want something in the moment so bad? Okay. Well then... I'll see the maximum that you are willing to pay, and I'll just, what's the word? I'll glut you, I'll gut you. I'll see the maximum that you're willing to pay since your desires have overtaken you in the moment, and I will milk you for all that you're worth to give you this thing that you're craving. Uh, this man of whom I speak, uh, not only was he out for number one, not only was he centered on self and self-focus. Not only, as I already mentioned, did he hire a prostitute, regardless of the cost, this man also, in one sense, could have cared less about his own family. He was that focused on self. He was full of hatred and greed, no love for family, no concern for God and his laws. He also had a certain family member towards whom he was vicious and it ended up causing this particular family member great, great pain and affliction. Let me give you a quote about grace. And not just about grace in the abstract, but about God. God, the God of all grace. This is from Augustine, which is like 1,700 years ago. Okay, That's when he lived, a long time ago. And he says this, listen. The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but rather makes them so. So Luke and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 have given us this wonderful summary. And we ask, man, how can I keep that all together in Genesis 37, 50? 14 chapters of a great story, but is there a short summary? And yes, there is. And you know what else? It would be an injustice for us to divorce the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis as a whole. We really need to keep Genesis 37 through 50. And remember, it's part of the book of Genesis. So could I just have you look real quick at Acts 7, 2? And let's make sure we know God's story. God's story from almost the beginning. Acts 7, 2, brothers and fathers, Stephen says, hear me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Genesis 43, turn there with me. Reconciliation and repentance. Reconciliation and repentance, Genesis 43 through 45. Let's go through the text. Hey, by the way, we're not looking at all of 45. We're going to look at all of 44, and we've already started to look at 43 in another sermon. So take heart, be of good courage. We're looking at these three chapters, and there's only one of them which we haven't paid attention to in terms of we'll look at 45 also later, Lord willing. Here's what we're going to see. Take note of this, and we'll march through the text and see what the Lord God has for us. Today, we'll, we'll look at Joseph is weeping, Joseph is testing, meaning he's testing his brothers, and then Joseph is crying, okay? That's what we'll see today. You got it? Joseph is weeping, Joseph is testing his, his brothers, and Joseph is crying or weeping again. Look with me at Genesis chapter 43. Look in verse 26. Genesis 43, 26. This is our first heading this morning. Joseph is weeping. Genesis 43, 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired, Genesis 43, 27, about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Now let me just tell you what's going on here before I read more in Genesis 43. In Genesis 43, as we noticed in Acts 7, Stephen's speech, this is the second visit that the brothers are making to Egypt. Okay? So get this, just get these basic things. Second visit from where? Well, they're coming. It's not a short visit. They're coming from where? From the land of Canaan. Okay, so they've already made one visit, and why are they going to Egypt in the first place? Well, the reason that they're going to Egypt in the first place is because there's this famine, right? It was told through Joseph by the Lord there's going to be seven years of, of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And so, as we read in chapter 43, if we were to look at it again, which we've done a few weeks ago, Jacob, the father of these brothers, says, we do need to go down to get more grain from Egypt so that we don't starve, but you, you're crazy if you think I'm going to let my dear son Benjamin go. And here we see again, it does seem like Israel who's also called Jacob, that's the same man, 
Israel and Jacob, we see this favoritism. It hasn't stopped. Back in chapter 37, he showed favoritism to Joseph. And here again in chapter 43, he's showing favoritism to who? To his youngest son, Benjamin. By the way, that's Joseph's full brother. Benjamin and Joseph are full brothers. So to, to Israel, Jacob, and to his sons, they think Joseph's dead, right? Remember that, right? We know that Joseph's the one interacting with them, but they think, and Joseph's father thinks, Joseph's dead. You're crazy if you think I'm going to let Benjamin go down with you to Egypt. But Judah says, Judah says, Dad, we need to go down or we're going to starve. And the man told us, the Lord of the land of Egypt, he said, I will, you will not see my face again if you do not bring your youngest brother. Dad, please, would you just listen to reason? Please listen to reason. We've got to have this food or else your grandchildren, our children are going to die. And he said, you've got to bring Benjamin. And so finally, Jacob says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Take some goodies. Take some money. Take double the amount of silver with you. That somehow some of the silver had reappeared in their sacks after the first visit. Take double the amount of silver. Take some goodies with you. Take some sweets for the people of Egypt. And okay, okay, take your brother Benjamin. So very quickly, what happens in chapter 43 is they go down with Benjamin. Joseph sees them. Joseph sees his youngest brother. He's the only one who's a full brother. And Joseph says to his steward, boys and girls, he says, Steward, make ready. We're going to have a feast at lunch today. Make ready. The men realize that they're going to eat lunch, eat a banquet with the Lord of the land, which we know is Joseph. We know that's Joseph. They don't know that. They know that he's the stern Lord of the land, the prime minister. And they say, oh, no, we know why he's inviting us into his house. We know why he's inviting us into his house because he thinks we stole the silver last time, but we didn't. And so they go to the steward and they say, please, please, here's what happened. We did not steal the silver. What does the steward say in chapter 43? In chapter 43, the steward says, hey, guys, chill out. He says, peace, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peace with you. I got your silver last time. I, I'm, I'm the one who, who got your silver. And then the steward, this Egyptian pagan, he says, he says, it was your God. It was your God who put this, who gave you this treasure, who gave you this gift of the silver back in your sacks. Wow, what a thing to say. And so they go in with, they go into Joseph's house, and they can't eat together because Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews. That's a no-no. But they go in and they eat with Joseph and they become intoxicated and they get drunk. Um, I, I want to speak for just a moment about the subject of incontinence. And I know maybe you didn't expect for me to speak on that subject this morning. But did you know that there's one definition of the word incontinence which may not mean what you think it means? So one actual definition of the word incontinence is lack of self-restraint. Okay, and we're going to see that. All through the text as we walk through it very quickly today. One definition of the word incontinence is a lack of self-restraint. And I want us to see, I want you to notice, have your antenna up, okay? That you may have picked up point one and point three is Joseph is weeping. And I think, as I've said before, I've alluded before, this is a good type of lack of self-restraint. 
I think this is beautiful. I think this is healthy. I think if, you know, maybe if a person never, ever, ever, ever cries, you know, or something like that, maybe that could be a sign of, of a lack of health. So this word incontinence not only means, of course, lack of voluntary control over bodily functions. That's the way we think of the word incontinence. It can also mean lack of self-restraint. So look again at the text. Look again, verse 26. Joseph came home. They brought into the house to him the present that they had with him. Remember that? Remember their father, Jacob, Israel? He said, take some, take some goodies, take some sweets, take the best of the land, take pistachio nuts, and take all these things, and take, take a packet of Fun Dip. Maybe he'll like that. And take some Krispy Kreme donuts. Maybe he'll love to stick the white dip thing into Fun Dip, and he'll think, man, these guys are great. And verse 26, they, they made the present ready that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Now notice this, verse 28. They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Uh, like in fulfillment of chapter 37 in Joseph's dreams. Verse 29. This is such a great story. And he lifted up his eyes, Joseph did, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. Why? Why? Why did he hurry out? For his compassion grew warm for his brother. What a turn of phrase, right? What does it not say? It doesn't say because he was happy to see Benjamin. It says his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. Would you get the, the, the picture in your mind? Where, how old was Joseph when we started this story? He was 17 years old. And then by the time he finally, finally stops all this perpetual suffering and affliction and he gets this promotion uh, by Pharaoh. I mean, he's 30 years old at that time. And then there's the seven years of abundance and then there's a seven years of famine. So if I'm doing my math correctly, at this point in time, it's two years into the famine, and Joseph is 39 years old. Do you see? And when is the last time that he's seen his full brother? I think he loves his other brothers, even though they were vicious towards him. He has not seen his dear brother Benjamin in well over 20 years. In the middle of verse 30, middle of verse 30, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Somebody's pointed out, man, it didn't take anything for the Israelites to get enmeshed with the Canaanites, but that would have never happened in Egypt. The reverse, the Egyptians kept their distance from the people of Israel. It's God's people who sometimes walk, walk right into worldliness. We're the ones, like Israel, who walk smack dab into worldliness. Hey, can I join you guys? Can I join you in debauchery, in doing the things that are clearly against God's word? No, it's the pagans, do you see? It's the pagans who said... There's not going to be any intermingling here. 
you sit there, we'll sit here. Verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. You can't just quickly go past some of these statements. The men, the men looked at one another in amazement. What? This, what? What's going on? Portions, verse 34, were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. What does your footnote say if you have one like mine? The Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. A sliver of it's in Aramaic. The Hebrew is, they became intoxicated. Why verse 34? Look at it. Why 34? Don't answer out loud, but do you know? Why was Benjamin's portion five times as much as any of theirs? Well, here's heading number two. Number one, Joseph is weeping. Number two, Joseph is testing, meaning testing his brothers. Now, I had never noticed this. Uh, Like many of you, I was certainly familiar with this Joseph story, but I never realized, really never realized at all, the way that Joseph in this story is intentionally, and even in a complex way, in just a very like thoughtful way, he is deliberately testing his brothers. He is putting them to the test. Now, now, why? Why would he be? T- think about think about this. Why would he be testing his brothers? Well, kind of, kind of obvious if you think about it, right? To see are they changed men, right? These are the same brothers who viciously sold him into slavery, left him for as good as dead, who hated him who could not even say the word shalom to him. They would not speak to him. Are these, Joseph thinks, are these changed men? That's that's why, I think, that's why verse 34. Oh, that sounds familiar. The younger gets a lot of blessings more than the older ones. That sounds familiar, right? How are they going to respond? Okay, now look at verse 1. Chapter 44, then he commanded, this is what we read, the steward of his house. Won't you see this again, even though we read it earlier. Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack. He's setting them up, right? He's setting them up with his money for the grain. And he, the steward, did just as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? So what's going on here? Let's take another breath. Let's let's get our bearings. Let's get our bearings. What's going on? You feel in any way lost? That's okay. Get this. We're already into chapter 44. I love how Dugid summarizes it. Listen to this. This is great. At the end of Genesis 43, we left the brothers on their second trip to Egypt to buy grain. With Joseph getting them so drunk that they would have only hazy memories of the night's events. I think that's, what, I think that's accurate. Remember what we just read in chapter 43? Joseph getting them so drunk 
that they would only have hazy memories. As they loaded their donkeys and headed back to Canaan, perhaps Simeon was wondering to himself, did I really stand on the table and belt out a karaoke version of Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Maybe Levi was recalling throwing up in one of the potted plants. Overall, however, overall, they must have been feeling intensely pleased with a successful conclusion to a dangerous mission. It was not just like a half a day's trip from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And you know, of course, as you've heard, that back in those days, you don't just take 95 or 85 and you go and you stay in the Marriott or whatever. It's a dangerous mission. It's a multi, 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 multi-day mission, and there's danger on any of these missions. And so they feasted. We don't really know why. We were drunk last night. But hey, maybe we did something crazy. I don't know. But things are pretty good. We've completed the mission. They had gone down to Egypt safely. They were bringing back abundant food. And for once, they had more brothers on the return trip than on the outward journey. Now listen to what he says. Listen. Nothing sobers a person up faster than the sound of sirens and the sight of flashing lights. Before the brothers knew it, they were metaphorically being pulled over on the hard shoulder of the highway and grilled about the whereabouts of their host's missing silver goblet. Did you hear that? Last night was great. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of these things. You know, they, they, they hope they're over their hangover or whatever. They're going home. Mission accomplished. The famine is severe. The famine is severe. We've got lots of grain. We don't have to go back down here, hopefully, ever again. As he says here, pull over to the side. You see your Canaanite license. And he says here in the text that we read earlier, he says, why have you done this? Why have you taken the Lord of Egypt's? We know it's Joseph. They don't. Why did you take his cup of divination? I mean, did you think you could get by with this? Did you not know that it's a cup of divination? That we would know? Did you not think about that? To which, of course, they replied. In all sincerity, in all sincerity, I mean, we see their sincerity because they ratchet it up. They say, no, why do you speak to us this way? Why would you accuse us of such a thing? Don't accuse us of that. We did not do that. Let me tell you this, sir, Mr. Steward. The man, if you find a man among us who has the silver goblet, then let him be dead. I mean, this is how clear their consciences are, right? Let that man be dead and let the rest of us become your servants. I don't know if you remember, but the steward, he lessened it, right? He immediately says, okay, I'll do as you say. What did they say? They said, let the man who's guilty be dead and the rest of us will become your slaves, he immediately says, I'll do as you say, the man who's guilty will be my servant, and the rest of you are innocent. Which is kind of interesting. I'll do as you say, but then he lessens it. Well, it's what's there in the text. And then, of course, they go from the oldest to the youngest. Oldest man's sack. Next oldest sack. We got, we got Judah and Reuben over here, right? Judah and Reuben. And they go all the way down to Benjamin. And, of course, you have to remember, it was Jacob who said, you're crazy if you think I'm ever going to allow Benjamin to go down with you. For if anything happened to him, because he's my favorite, 
If anything happens to him, you will bring down my gray head to shield. And of course, that's exactly what they think is happening. Oh, no. Oh, no. The silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Not to mention that all the silver is replaced in their sack. Why is the silver replaced in our sack again? This is the second time this has happened. And why is our younger brother? And they begin, listen, because God is able to work to change the lives of very sinful, self-centered men. They begin to think God, listen, they're saying God is exposing our guilt. I think, I think what's clearly going on in this story is that, listen, Judah and the brothers, the brothers and specifically Judah are saying, okay, so this is how it's going to be. God is exposing the guilt. What guilt? Chapter 37. When they sold Joseph into slavery all that time ago. At this point, Judah, it's almost like he has this uh, this tit-for-tat view. You know, I do bad. Praise God that this is not part of the gospel. But it's almost like he has this view. I do bad. Karma. Karma. It's going to come back around. It's going to come back around. But the good news of the gospel says that the sin of the world, of everyone who will ever repent and believe, falls on the head of the Son of God at Calvary, at the cross. And so there's no karma. Although Judas, thinking about this, he said, well, what can I say? What can I say? We we sold Joseph into slavery, and now it's coming back to bite us. And the whole time, God is at work. The overriding providence of God, the meticulous sovereignty of God at every step, every step of the way. Look with me in chapter 44. Look at verse 18. By the way, Joseph Joseph said the same thing that the steward said. Joseph said, why did you do this evil? I haven't started reading verse 18 yet. They said, I, we, don't, we, we can't explain it. And they said, we're all going to be your servants. And Joseph said, no, I'm not, gonna, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of guy. This is a test. You know, TV, this is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is a test, friends. This is a test. Joseph is setting up a quite elaborate test. He is testing them to see, are they changed men? Is there any difference from when they viciously sold me into slavery and didn't even care about their own father? They didn't care about their own dad. Dad, here's this code. It looks like an animal tore Joseph to pieces. We're so sorry. Can we mourn with you for a few days? We don't care. We got money out of it. Verse 18, chapter 44. Judah went up with him, went up to him, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or his brother? Stop there. I want to come back to that. I think this is a high point. I think this is a high point. I want to come back to it. Go to chapter 45. Chapter 45. Number one. Joseph is weeping. Uh, It's that one particular definition of incontinence, and I think it's a healthy type. Number two, Joseph is testing. I'd never really noticed that before. He is clearly testing them at every point, multiple tests. 
Number three, Joseph is crying. Joseph is weeping. Okay, those are, those are the three headings, right? We've got those out of the way. Joseph is crying. Joseph is testing. Joseph is crying. Now let me point out two or three big truths. Let me point out two or three big picture truths. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. And the first truth is this, is the truth of the overriding providence of God. The truth of the overriding providence of God. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. No, no, friends, it's not talking, I don't mean to be funny, it's not talking about that type of incontinence. It's talking about emotionally, right? Chapter 45, verse 1. He could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when? When Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Which is to say, Joseph was there and his brothers were there, but all of his attendants were not. Verse 2. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You see? I told you there's no, these little comments by the narrator, they're important. So Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near. I hope you see why I titled this sermon Reconciliation and Repentance. This message is not just about the sovereignty of God. It is, but it's also about reconciliation. God is not only the king of the universe. He is not only the king with whom we have to do. He is also the father who reconciles his chosen people to himself through his chosen man. It is not only about some mere sovereignty. It is also about family reconciliation. Joseph said to his brothers, come near. And they came near. And he said, verse 4, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. It's okay, guys. It's okay. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. It's still going to be bad. It may even get worse. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Notice verse 7, God sent me before you. What about the end of verse 5? God sent me before you. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve life, to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. Stop. It was them who sent Joseph there, right? Can we honestly say they sent Joseph there? Well, of course we can. But he gets to the point where he says, by comparison, it was not you. You did not send me here, but God. That's the third time, if you haven't noticed. The end of verse 5, the beginning of verse 7, verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God sent me here. The overriding providence of God. He is over all. You know, God is working everything in the world today for the good of his people. God orchestrates everything because of his church. 
The apple of his eye is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone, is it you this morning? Everyone who is joined by faith to the apple of his eye. And that's why the church is the apple of his eye. He loves the church because it's the people of Jesus Christ. Everything in the world, good and absolutely including evil, everything in the world, totally including evil, works for the eternal good of the church of Jesus Christ. If God did not spare his own son, Romans 8, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So it was not you who sent me here. Joseph apparently is not only an interpreter of dreams. Listen, he's also been gifted to interpret providence. Joseph can interpret dreams only through God. Joseph also can interpret providence only through God, at least in this instance, right? He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. Read it with me. And ruler over all the land of Egypt. Look at verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph. Wow! Thus says your son Joseph. What? God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Verse 13 of chapter 45. You, my brothers, must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. You just said that, right? Seen with your own eyes. Hurry! Bring my father down here. Remember, I said the third time, Joseph's weeping. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And the narrator says, after that, his brothers talked with him. There's no throwaway word in the Bible. One of the things that it particularly said earlier of Joseph's brothers and their relationship to Joseph is that they hated him so much they would not speak to him. They would not even say shalom. And then here at the end of our passage today, it says, after that, his brothers talked with him. Not to mention, they're all over each other's necks, kissing. It's beautiful. I hope you see this. It is beautiful. It is reconciliation. Have you been reconciled to your creator? I ask you, are you reconciled to your creator? Do you know him as Father God? It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus that you can know him as Father let me close with those two or three things that I mentioned to you. We've already finished with Joseph is weeping and Joseph is testing and Joseph is crying or Joseph is weeping. The truth of the overriding providence of God. This is These first two are from chapter 45. I'll give you the, to them quickly. Just pay attention for just a moment. Chapter 45, the truth of the overriding providence of God. 
or if we want to say these in the same way that we were saying the other ones, God was sending. God was sending. God was sending. Joseph's crying. Joseph's testing. God was sending. Number two, the beauty and power of forgiveness. (laughs) Joseph uh, had these elaborate tests for them. Are they changed men? What's the answer? What's the answer to his question that gave way to all these tests? Are they changed? Yeah, they're changed men. What? How? How? Through repentance. How repentance? By the grace of God. Nobody inherits the kingdom of God apart from repentance. And nobody repents apart from the grace of God. How are they changed men? Are they changed men? What are they going to do when I give Benjamin five times as much as the rest of them? They're not going to say anything because they're changed men. They don't look over at Benjamin's table and say, Eh, what about him? We're not getting as much as he is. They don't say anything. What does Judah do? Oh, man. They are changed men. I'm getting the beauty and power of forgiveness. Matthew 18, Matthew 18, Matthew 18. I refer to the parable in Matthew 18. Joseph had every, not only did he have every right, he had the setup perfect. He had every right and he had the perfect setup to destroy them. He could have killed them. He could have made them slaves forever. He says what? Listen to me. Look at me. He says, hey, guys, it's okay. Don't be mad at yourselves. What does that mean? Does it mean that what they did wasn't evil? It was evil. You are responsible for your sin. We are responsible. You're responsible today. We teach human responsibility from the Bible. We teach human responsibility. What they did to Joseph was evil, but he says, in essence, I forgive you. Because God had allowed him to read Providence. God had allowed him to read Providence, and he said, if my suffering, if my affliction, and oh, does this not sound like somebody else on a much greater level, if my suffering, if my undeserved affliction wins salvation for the world, then so be it. I forgive you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The truth of the overriding providence of God, the beauty and power of forgiveness. He could have, he could have done whatever he wanted to with them. You mistreat, you ruined my life. You took the best years of my life. You took the best years of my life. And I love you, and I forgive you. And then I just leave you with chapter 44, 18 through 34, and I'm not going to read it. Chapter 44, 18 through 34. There was a man who cared only about himself. He hired a prostitute. Didn't, didn't even matter what it cost him. He hated His family in one sense, and one particular member of his family he made miserable. And the man's name was Judah. And in Genesis chapter 38, he's hiring a prostitute. And he later has to admit, she is more righteous than I. And God begins to work in him in Genesis 38. And in Genesis 37, Judah, 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 he's the greedy one who said, why why are we going to kill him when we could sell him and make money? I mean, that's in some sense even worse. There was one man in this story, dear friends, there's one man in this story who has a history, not of perfection, but of acting righteously, and that's Joseph. And there's another man in this story who has a very, very clear history of great, great imperfection and wickedness, and that's Judah. And the beautiful picture that you see 
And the second part of Genesis 44 is Judah saying, Sir, I don't know who you are. Please, I plead with you. Can I take my brother's place? Please, I'll be your servant. I'll do whatever. I cannot, I cannot go back to my father without Benjamin. Please, can I take his place? Can I be his substitute? Can I take his guilt even though Benjamin was actually not guilty of stealing the cup? He didn't steal the cup. But Judah said, I'll take the guilt of my brother Benjamin. Please, he's a changed man. The grace of God changes men. The grace of God changes a man through repentance, through the cross of Christ. Thank you.